Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Gang, let me thank you for coming. You have a host of different options of how you want to spend this part of your day. We welcome the fact and are appreciative of the fact that you decided to spend some of this time during your day here with us. Today is going to be movie day at Heritage. It's going to be a movie about prosecutors. Why? Criminal justice reform has, by and large to date, focused on two other aspects of the system. Legislatures who pass the laws that wind up leading to arrest charges and the like, and the police who make the arrests. But as everyone who has ever watched Law and Order knows, there is another player in the process, and those are prosecutors. They are the ones who work with the police to decide what cases to bring and what charges to file. They are the ones who represent the federal, state, or local governments in the course of any plea negotiations. And they are the ones who stand up in court and represent the people, either of the United States or the state, when a case does go to trial. There are a great many different views about prosecutors held by a great many different people. The Federalist Society and Heritage want to show you this movie, which is only about 20 minutes long that will give you different views about different aspects of the profession, of the role played by prosecutors, and of the very different views that there are in connection with the role they play. So without further ado, let me now turn things over so that you can see the movie, after which we have a very distinguished panel of experts who will comment on the movie and then engage in questions. Thank you. prosecutor's job is not uh, to convict people or to put them in jail, it's to do justice. There's an old adage that uh, the last place that you should seek justice is in the halls of justice. The, the federal criminal justice system carefully uh, has evolved uh, with, with checks and balances and it works. Prosecutors exercise a tremendous amount of, uh, of power and they're given a tremendous amount of authority. And with that, uh, they ought to exercise it responsibly, and there needs to be some oversight for, for that. This is not a new debate. This is a debate that we've been having for as long as the criminal justice system has existed. So 
So a prosecutor is a public official who is assigned the responsibility to prosecute individuals who have been accused of committing criminal offenses. They have the responsibility to ensure that the laws passed by Congress and signed by the president are executed. I see the, the, the prosecutor as wielding the most enormous power of any anybody, any government official, any government official when you think about it. And I'm talking about exercising legitimate power, legitimate power that can deprive a person of his liberty, destroy a person's reputation, and actually take away a person's life in those jurisdictions that have capital punishment. Unlike uh, a civil lawyer who, you know, is, is hired by a client who is uh, uh, staying within the bounds of, uh, of ethical rules to try to win their case, uh, a prosecutor's role is not to win at all costs. Uh, it is to, you know, seek an indictment and charges against the guilty uh, and also to investigate and try to exonerate those who are not guilty. My view is that prosecutors are performing a public service um, and we have a system in which um, there is adversarial litigation in criminal litigation. So um, you have prosecutors on the one side, you have defense counsel on the other side, um, and we practice every day against some very, very talented and dedicated defense counsel. And prosecutors are necessary for that system to work. I don't know that it's an inherent flaw to have an adversarial system of justice in which prosecutors advocate for one side. I think what's extremely unwise and misguided is to suppose that they can in fact wear these two hats. An advocate for the government on the one hand, uh, and an independent officer of the court charged with doing justice on the other. Defense lawyer is supposed to zealously defend their client. I'm supposed to sacrifice myself over the client. That is not the mantra, the ideology, the ethos of a prosecutor. Prosecutor's got one duty and one duty only, seek justice. Unfortunately, that isn't what happens in, in America. To do justice, to balance your, your, your obligation to convict guilty people, but also serve the cause of justice, you need a huge amount of discretion in it to be able to make these very, very difficult choices. Choices that depend on the evidence, choices that depend on the charges, choices that depend on the nature of the offender. Prosecutorial discretion is one of the most critical functions a prosecutor has. It's a gatekeeping process by which we look at cases that come in. We can't, either in a federal system or in a state system, you can't prosecute every crime that's committed, uh, nor should you. Justice Jackson, when he was the Attorney General of the United States, gave a speech on April 1st of 1940 called the Federal Prosecutor. In that speech, he addressed prosecutorial discretion, and he explained that the prosecutor should seek to bring charges in those cases where the defendant's conduct is the most egregious, where the public harm is the greatest, and where the proof is the strongest. And that's essentially what prosecutors do. I do think that prosecutors need to have a certain amount of discretion in how they go about their job and the decisions that they make. But I think we've allowed the process uh, to become so lopsided uh, where it really is basically run by prosecutors. Prosecutors are certainly powerful and important players in the criminal justice system, but not in a way that is improper. The idea that they're running the show neglects a lot of other players in the criminal justice system. Prosecutors generally in our system of government have a fair amount of discretion to decide what charges are appropriate, decide who's appropriate to charge, decide how to resolve a case, whether through a plea bargain or going to trial. Mm -hmm. 
after the Civil War, there was a significant rise in crime, and with that, a need to resolve cases in an expeditious, efficient way to prevent the system from being clogged, and that's how plea bargaining came into being. The essential concept of a plea bargain um, is that the, the, the person who pleads guilty admits guilt um, to some offenses and then gets some sort of benefit um, for having done that. There were something like 11 million arrests last year. Um, that's a lot of people to process through the system. Uh, and there's fairly wide agreement among experts that if every criminal defendant exercised their constitutional right to a jury trial, the whole system would just grind to a halt because we just don't have the resources, or more accurately, we are not prepared to commit the resources to ensure that every criminal defendant gets the jury trial that they are constitutionally entitled to. When they don't contest their guilt, it would be a huge waste of our resources to bring citizens in from the community to sit through a trial where there's no no contest, where everybody agrees that the person's guilty. It's more important that we focus those limited resources on the individuals who contest their guilt and give them full due process. I think there are more cases than ever that are now uh, ending in a plea bargain. I think it's now about 97% of cases end in plea bargain. You have to do nothing more than take a look at the number of people that go to trial in the federal system. There are federal judges who've never tried a criminal case. There are federal judges who have retired from the bench who've never heard or had to their clerk read the words not guilty in their courtroom during their entire federal career, which is to, should give you great pause if you're a citizen in the United States of America. From about 1960 to 1991, violent crime spiraled upward. It more than crippled. During the mid to late 80s, Congress responded and they implemented mandatory minimums. And federal prosecutors working with state and local partners began to go into the communities and take out the worst, most violent, significant drug traffickers and, viol and other violent felons. And they took those folks and they put them in federal prison. And it worked well because beginning in about 1991 and continuing to about 2014, the violent crime rate was more than cut in half. If somebody is convicted of a mandatory minimum penalty, a judge is supposed to sentence somebody to that minimum period of time, possibly a lot more. And that has changed the leverage that prosecutors uh, have when it comes to charging decisions and plea negotiations. Well, the reality of our system is that if a defendant goes to trial, the defendant and his lawyer know that if he gets convicted, he's going to get sentenced far more harshly than if he agrees to uh, uh, settle the case by a plea guilty. And there will be some people who will say, well, gosh, I'm innocent, but I'm aware of the fact that there is some evidence that makes me look pretty bad uh, and that a prosecutor might well get a conviction. If I accept this plea bargain, I might get a three or four month sentence. If I am convicted of this mandatory minimum offense, I will get a five or 10 year sentence. And so some people will say, well, even though I am innocent, I realize things look bad for me, therefore I will take that plea. The idea that you're somehow coercing an innocent defendant to plead guilty to a crime that they did not commit because they fear the mandatory minimum ignores the reality that most of these criminal cases in federal court are incredibly strong. And it also, you have to accept that the grand jury indicted a case that was not supported by the evidence that a criminal defense attorney who has reviewed the discovery believes that their client should plead to a crime that they did not commit. And it also overlooks that in the federal criminal justice system, no defendant can plead guilty 
to a crime unless a U.S. District Court judge makes a finding that that plea is supported by a factual basis. The judge must be convinced based upon the colloquy and the evidence in the record at the plea hearing that the defendant committed the crime that he's pleading guilty to committing. Prosecutors, as I say, by controlling the charges, they control the sentencing. Because if you, if you bring a charge that carries with it a mandatory minimum, the judge can't undermine that. You're ineffectively making the punishment by bringing the particular charge. We're looking at the law, we're looking at the facts. Does it fit um, this offense, whether or not that offense carries a mandatory minimum? And if it does, and we think it's in the best interest to charge it, we'll charge it that way. And it's um, one, one tool, if you will, in the prosecutor's toolbox. The job of a prosecutor is to enforce the law as written by Congress and signed by the president. The federal law at this point has mandatory minimums. The prosecutor's job is to follow the law and enforce the law. If people are upset about the existence of mandatory minimums, the proper forum is Congress, not the U.S. Attorney's Office, to raise that complaint. We have a very important doctrine called prosecutorial immunity. Prosecutorial immunity means that a prosecutor is immune from being sued civilly for his conduct as, as a prosecutor. All the conduct that a prosecutor does in terms of charging, plea bargaining, trials, hiding evidence, uh, even, bribing, even bribing a witness, a prosecutor enjoys absolute immunity from being sued civilly. The overwhelming number of cases, prosecutors are immunized. Now, I don't, I've never understood this. I've always been on the defense side for 35 years. I screw up, I get sued. I gotta defend myself, I can't defend myself, I gotta pay up. Ask yourself, recognizing the fact that, like the rest of us, they're human, if you can win a case through misconduct by, by basically cheating, in effect, with the knowledge, or at least a fairly high degree of certainty, that there will be no repercussions for you personally, if, if, you, if you do that, essentially that you will get away with it, which way does that, what, what kind of incentives does that create? The idea behind absolute prosecutorial immunity is that if the prosecutor had to fear that every one of those defendants would bring a civil lawsuit against the prosecutor for wrongful prosecution, that the prosecutor would, first of all, be deterred from making the tough decisions, and second of all, that the prosecutor would essentially have to create an entire wing of the prosecutor's office devoted to nothing but defending all of the civil lawsuits because it is pretty much a given that a large percentage of the defendants that a prosecutor prosecutes would want to sue the prosecutor. Those prosecutorial decisions have to be made independently without that, that sort of fear. Prisoners, criminal defendants in particular, are especially litigious. Now, I recognize that that's a concern, but it is a concern that could absolutely be addressed and dealt with far short of completely eliminating civil liability for prosecutors, which is the only real uh, means of truly effective accountability available to us. The Supreme Court, I think, has said that um, the idea of prosecutorial immunity is really a balancing of evils. It's not like it's perfect in every instance, but um, overall, it's better for the system. Prosecutors are hands down the least accountable people in America. Um, as a, they cannot be sued. Um, they are virtually never prosecuted for their own misconduct. Internal disciplinary measures um, exist on paper, but they're a joke in practice. There's an extensive body of literature that shows that prosecutors routinely get away with jaw-droppingly uh, unethical and improper behavior. This notion that there is widespread 
uh, prosecutorial misconduct is simply a myth. Uh, on any given year, there are about 2.2 million felony prosecutions. And in the same year, there are usually about 60 findings of prosecutorial misconduct. That's infinitesimal. And to, uh, to suggest that with the robust checks and balances we have in place now, there need to be more to, to focus on a problem that, that, that is really non-existent, uh, I think, is, is misplaced. I like to think that those instances are few and far between, but they certainly happen. Uh, and one should examine them very carefully to find out what went wrong and what can be done to make sure something like that doesn't happen again or at least dramatically minimizes the likelihood that it'll happen again. What's interesting is the courts, who presumably could oversee the prosecutor's discretion, exercise virtually no uh, supervisory authority. We have judges who have the authority to dismiss cases if the case is brought to trial and the government doesn't have sufficient evidence. They also have the authority to, uh, if a prosecutor has engaged in some other type of misconduct, the judge can take uh, action against the prosecutor. The uh, judge who's part of the judicial branch will make rulings uh, based on the arguments of the parties. Um, and so that keeps the prosecutor in check, if you will. The criminal justice system uh, is and ought to be ultimately the responsibility of judges. As neutral arbiters, it should be their job to ensure that everybody within the system is playing by the rules. That doesn't happen very often in our case, in our system, because prosecutors are really running the show from start to finish. Not much of the total amount of criminal litigation that goes on in America today happens in court. Most of it uh, happens at the level of the prosecutor um, interacting with defendants and their attorneys. Most of what a prosecutor does is in the public eye. It's on public pleadings, it's in briefs, and it's in open court. So the levels of review begin with the public, they, the, the media, the judiciary. Beyond that, of course, we have the Office of Professional Responsibility. And beyond that, uh, every prosecutor is subject to disciplinary action uh, by the uh, Board of Professional Responsibility in their state. So the, all of those layers are there. There are prosecutors who do violate the rules sometimes often. And these prosecutors should be weeded out. They should be weeded out either by their own offices or by the, 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 the system of, of professional discipline. Um, and they do give prosecutors a bad name, just as bad police officers give, give, give police officers a bad name. The stakes are high when it comes to, to criminal law. Again, respect for the rule of law in our society largely comes down to how does our criminal justice system uh, operate? Do people get a fair shake, both victims uh, and people who are under investigation? People always tell me it may not be a perfect system, but it's the best system that we've devised. And I always tell them, you know, conceptually, I agree with that. But if this is the best, then, the, the, then that's frightening. Uh, because uh, all you have to do is hang out in any courthouse uh, for any period of time in virtually any jurisdiction, and you would be appalled by what you see on a daily basis. We created a situation where it's extremely difficult for, for criminal defendants um, to have a zealous representation, and we've equipped prosecutors with an astonishing uh, array of coercive tools that they can and do bring to bear on people to extract uh, confessions uh, and that's why most criminal convictions today, more than 95%,
are obtained through plea bargain. It's not because people are no longer interested in exercising one of the most hallowed and hard-won rights in the Constitution, which is the right to a jury trial. It's because they're being pressured and coerced into pleading guilty, whether they're guilty or not. And that has got to stop. The, the fact that we have so many people in prison is not as a result of uh, overly zealous prosecutors or enforcement. It's a result of the fact that we have too much crime. And uh, you can look to whatever causes you want for that crime, whether it's uh, people don't have job opportunities, whether it's the educational system, whether it's a breakdown in the family structure, whatever, whatever it is, it is. And our job as prosecutors is at the end of the line is to deal with that. And the way we, we have to deal with it is to incarcerate people who victimize uh, the good and honest citizens who are out there in the community. I do think that the vast majority of prosecutors take their duty to do justice and not just to seek convictions very, very seriously. Um, and so they're out there every day um, investigating to see has a crime even been committed, if a crime has been committed, what crime was it, um, and who's responsible in trying to make the best decision possible um, about what charges to bring and who to charge. I mean, I think the prosecutor's job is one of the great jobs anybody could hold. As I said, I, I couldn't wait to get to work. I, I felt I was privileged, honored to be a prosecutor, to be able to serve the public this way, to be able to serve justice. It's a wonderful, wonderful profession, but it needs those people who, who are inspired to do the right thing, to make sure that, uh, that they're going to follow the rules, you know, to ensure that uh, at least the best, the best of your ability, that society is being protected, but that individuals uh, are not being... Uh, unfairly, improperly, wrongfully uh, accused and punished. The idea that we're ever going to find a perfect answer to this neglects the fact that what we're talking about is a system created by human beings dealing with other human beings. And as we approach the debate, what's important, I think, to remember is that both sides are approaching it in good faith with ideas about the way in which they think improvements should be made or improvements are unnecessary. But at the end of the day, people who are on both sides of the debate are well-meaning and we have to be careful that we don't somehow paint the people who don't want the reforms as a particular type of person and those who are seeking the reforms as a particular type of person. Instead, we should relish the debate. It's an important debate. It's one that we should be having.
Personally, I like the fact that they even listed the gaffers uh, at the end in the credits. Gang, as I said at the outset, we have three experts today who are going to talk about different perspectives on the themes and tone and the like of what you just saw. Our first speaker will be Associate Professor of Law Sean Hopwood. He works at the Georgetown University Law Center, where he has had an unusual career. Unusual because Sean had been convicted some time ago of armed bank robbery. Turned out, however, that he had a real knack not only for writing but legal analysis and wound up being successful helping another prisoner get a certiorari petition granted by the Supreme Court. He then worked with former U.S. Solicitor General Seth Waxman in getting the brief prepared, and Seth wound up saying that Sean's work made it one of the best briefs he'd ever seen. Sean, after release, wound up working for a printing company that produced Supreme Court briefs, and if he made some revisions to them along the way, we'll keep that quiet, but I'm sure they only would have improved the process. He subsequently attended and graduated from the University of Washington School of Law and then clerked for Judge Janice Rogers Brown on the D.C. Circuit. He recently co-founded PrisonProfessors.com, where he works to create content that will improve the outcome of our nation's criminal justice system. Following Sean will be Steve Cook. Steve is currently an Associate Deputy Attorney General at the Department of Justice. Among other things, he serves as the Deputy Attorney General's point person on the Task Force for Crime Reduction and Public Safety. Prior to his appointment to the Maine Justice Department, Steve served as the Chief of the Criminal Division in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of Tennessee, where he had been an assistant United States attorney for 30 years. But not only does Steve have long experience in the courtroom, Steve worked as a police officer for seven, seven years in Knoxville, Tennessee, before he even went to law school. A graduate of the University of Tennessee Law School, Steve clerked before moving on to become a prosecutor in Tennessee and then at Maine Justice. Our third speaker is Clark Neely. Clark is currently Vice President for Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute. A graduate of the University of Texas Undergraduate School and Law School, where he still teaches as an adjunct professor, Clark clerked for Judge Royce Lamberth, a district court judge here in the District of Columbia. Prior to going to Cato, Clark served as a senior attorney and very successful constitutional litigator at the Institute for Justice, where he was director of the Institute's Center for Judicial Engagement. He is the author of numerous scholarly articles, as well as a book, Terms of Engagement, how our courts should enforce the Constitution's promise of limited government. Please join me in welcoming our speakers. And the first one, as I mentioned, will be Sean Hopwood. Thank you.
Well, let me start with the big picture ideas. Um, I don't think you can talk about prosecutors until you first understand kind of the state of the criminal justice system in the United States. And the state is that the United States um, pretty much is the world's leader in incarceration. We incarcerate our citizens at a greater rate than almost any other country on the planet. Uh, 2.2 million people in prison, millions of people cycle through county jails all the time. Um, and I'm certain that, you know, most prosecutors would say that is required in order to keep crime down. And yet, if you look at the statistics, and especially when you compare across nations, Canada's crime rate has gone up and down kind of in simpatico with ours, and yet they incarcerate a fraction of the number of people that we do. Uh, and Canada, unlike the United States, does not have these robust constitutional protections. I often make the case that, you know, when the framers created the Bill of Rights, they were thinking a great deal about prosecutorial and federal government power because of the first eight amendments to the Constitution outside of the first is almost all based on protecting individual liberty against government overreach and making it difficult for government to prosecute people and to put people in prison. Uh, I don't think the framers would have thought mass incarceration was part of the constitutional design because if they did, they wouldn't have made it so difficult by requiring things like proof beyond a reasonable doubt and a right to a jury trial, uh, a right that, as Clark knows, is pretty important because it's the only right contained both in the body of the Constitution and in the Bill of Rights. The framers thought that one was so important, they did it twice. And so... I start with the view that, that we do not necessarily need to incarcerate as many people as we do in order to keep crime down. And I think we've seen this in a lot of states recently who have both reduced the prison population and continued to watch crime go down. To me, that means we should reexamine some of the policies that uh, I think that we enacted in the 80s and 90s. It's not that those policies did not contribute to the crime drop. I think they did. Um, but I think you can also make the case now with a whole lot more data and a whole lot more experts, economists, criminologists studying the system that we don't need to incarcerate as many people as we do to, in order to keep crime down. Now, moving on to prosecutors, I think in order to understand prosecutorial discretion, you first have to understand how much discretion they have. And on the federal side, it is pretty vast. Uh, in part because Congress, and I say this a lot, Congress does not value your individual liberty. Why do I know that? Because they have created 5,000 federal statutes, 5,000 things so serious that they're equated to what used to be rape, robbery, murder, 5,000 things so serious that they could warrant you going to jail and prison for. And that is just the statutes that carry criminal penalties. Congress has kicked the can down the road and allowed administrative agencies to create regulations that carry criminal penalties. Um, you know, the Heritage Foundation tried to determine how many statutes there were that carry criminal penalties and regulations. No one knows. We know it's over 5,000 statutes, over 300 regulations. So in 300,000, yes. And so when you think about the discretion that prosecutors have, I view it like this. Congress has criminalized everything and basically left it to your local U.S. attorney to decide what to charge. And when you criminalize everything but decide nothing, 
the U.S. code is not necessarily the law. What is the law is what your U.S. attorney in each individual district decides to prioritize. Because I think almost every federal prosecutor I've ever talked to would tell you that if they tried to enforce all 5,000 laws and all 300,000 regulations, well, many of you would not be in this room because you would be in federal prison. Uh, and I use several examples to explain why that is. There's one statute that says if you use or abuse a drug on the Controlled Substance Act and then possess a firearm, you're no different from me, a felon possessing a firearm. Well, you know, President Clinton said he smoked but didn't inhale. Um, President Bush and President Obama both admitted to doing illegal drugs that were listed on the Controlled Substance Act. And I have pictures of all three of them off the Internet holding guns. So I could make a pretty good case that the last three presidents of the United States have all committed federal felonies. So thinking about this huge, wide discretion where prosecutors can pick and choose, and I think they realize that they have that discretion, but then it's interesting to me when they say that they can't exercise discretion. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples. One is when they charge things, in a way that they know if the defendant goes to trial and exercises their jury trial right, that they are basically going to put them in prison for the rest of their life. And I always use the example of Adam Clausen, who committed nine robberies of massage parlors around Philadelphia. No one was hurt, but guns were used. He was charged with a provision that has since been changed by the First Step Act that says if you use or carry a gun during a crime of violence, uh, the first charge is five years, and every charge after that is 25 years. Run consecutive to each other, and then run consecutive to the sentences on the robberies. So Adam exercised his right to a jury trial and received a 213-year sentence. His outdates December 1st, 2185. And there, I think you could make the case that if prosecutors can pick and choose amongst all the charges, why can't they charge a case in a way that if someone exercises the right to a jury trial, they do not go to prison for the rest of their life. And then I will talk about another um, way where I feel like prosecutors could use their discretion more to do justice and do criminal justice reform. And that is when um, we discover that someone is no longer a threat to public safety. And I'm going to use the example of my friend and former client, Matthew Charles. Matthew Charles received a 35-year drug sentence. Uh, he was released after 21 years, 21 years where he had not one disciplinary report in that time. He's released because the judge thinks a new provision applies to him. He's out for two years, does everything that we want, gets a job, a place to live, community with his church, and every Saturday goes to volunteer at, and I can't make this up, a soup kitchen for the homeless called The Little Pantry That Could. DOJ appeals his sentence, they win, the federal judge brings him back to court, asks the prosecutor, will you dismiss the charge? And the prosecutor says, no, we have to impose the rule of law equally. And so there the judge had to impose a nine more years of imprisonment on Matthew Charles, sent him back to prison. Fortunately, Matthew was released under the First Step Act. And so why do I think that it's inconsistent with prosecutorial discretion to say that they can't dismiss charges after the fact when we know someone has been over-sentenced and over-charged and is no longer a danger. I mean, Matthew Charles had been out for two years. 
uh, all the data tells us that most recidivism happens in the first two years of release. Well, they would say, well, we have to apply the law across the board equally, and that's why we couldn't dismiss the charges. But they do that every single day. There is a Rule 35 that says if someone cooperates, the government can dismiss charges or file a motion and have people's sentences reduced. They do it all of the time when it serves their purposes. Um, And, you know, I would be more receptive to the rule of law argument if prosecutors were just carrying out the law. But truth is, prosecutors, and especially federal prosecutors, the Department of Justice is the best lobbying group in this city. The best lobbying group in this city. And they have lobbied Congress and asked for laws that make it easier for them to prosecute people. Um, by valuing cooperation above all with DOJ, regardless of culpability. I can't tell you how many people I saw in federal prison who were serving a long sentence who were a street dealer who had no information to give to the government, and the person that was the ringleader of the drug conspiracy had cooperated and received a smaller sentence than the street dealer, even though they were far more culpable. So federal prosecutors make these decisions and weigh out certain factors all the time, even after people have been convicted and long after their sentences are final. And then I'll just say one last thing about the lobbying and the rule of law in DOJ, which is sometimes DOJ has operated in a way that contradicts the president's own prerogatives. And I will use the example of clemency. During the Obama administration, the president set clemency guidelines of who should get clemency and how these petitions should be handled. The president set those guidelines. The Office of Pardon Attorney followed them and made a lot of favorable recommendations in cases where the pardon attorney felt that the person fit under the president's own policy prerogatives. And what happened was, in clemency, once the pardon attorney makes a decision, it then goes to the deputy attorney general, who basically has veto power over it. And there, the deputy attorney general, Sally Yates, not only overrid thousands of favorable recommendations, but then kept that information from the White House to the point where Deborah Left, the pardon attorney, resigned in protest. And so there, I think DOJ is actually not just operating prosecutorial discretion, but if you're a fan of unitary executive, that should bother you that DOJ's prerogatives prevailed over that of the president's. Thank you. Steve? Thank you, Paul. First of all, I want to thank Paul for for the kind introduction. I also want to thank, though, some other folks who are here. Matt Wood, who is the producer of the the film you saw, he did an outstanding job, didn't he? Great job. And uh, so I want to thank both the Federalist Society and, uh, and of course, the Heritage Foundation uh, for inviting us to participate in this important discussion. I'd be remiss if I didn't also mention and, and, uh, and, and express appreciation for Jessica Klein, their deputy director of programs, who's always behind the scenes making things work here. Um, so if you listen to the, the video or the documentary as I did and uh, listen to it critically, you will have noticed that the word victim is only used twice, once by John and, and once by me. And it's that perspective that I think is so grossly overlooked when we, uh, when, when, we, when we talk about the criminal justice system. 
Uh, as we just saw in the documentary, uh, it highlights areas that that critics focus on when they attack the criminal justice system. I'm eager to talk about all of those when we get into the dialogue, but I, what I think would be helpful is to start with a definition, and this is the definition, and that is of the criminal justice system. The criminal justice system is a function of government designed to deliver an efficient, effective, and fair process to create a safe society. Like all government functions, it operates with limited resources. It's designed to serve the public, not criminals. That said, our criminal justice system affords criminally accused a broad range of of protections, the right to remain silent, to due process, to the right to a jury trial, the right to a speedy trial, the right to compel witnesses to testify on their behalf, the right to counsel, just to name a few. Importantly, too, as part of the process, our founding fathers have imposed the uh, the burden of proof to prove every every element of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt, the highest burden in our civil or criminal law. And we spend a lot of time talking about protecting the criminally accused. In fact, increasingly, we talk about criminals as though they're the victims. So I want to take just a couple of minutes and give you a small glimpse into the other side of the criminal justice system, that is the victim side. Take for just a second, and these, are, of course, are hypothetical. Take for just a second a 72-year-old gentleman. We'll call him Charles in Duluth, Minnesota. Charles worked his entire life in a factory. He and his wife, we'll call her Meg, were dedicated parents. They raised two children, all the while scrimping and saving money wherever they could. Charles and Meg then transitioned to their retirement, and they turned their life savings uh, to provide for their food, housing, utilities, prescription medication, and for the medical care of Meg, who had become a victim of Alzheimer's. Charles' entire life revolved around caring for his wife of 50 years. One day, Charles got a call from a con man. The details of the call don't matter. But, it, but, but uh, the con man convinced Charles to send a few thousand dollars to what turned out to be an untraceable account. And then a few more thousand dollars. And again, and again, and again. By the time Charles realized he'd been conned, their entire life savings was gone. No longer able to care for his wife, Embarrassed, humiliated, he hanged himself. Or take the bank teller in Kansas City. We'll call her Janice. At 23 years old, she graduated from college. Just starting a family in her career in banking, one Friday morning, a man came into the bank, jumped over the counter, stuck a gun in her face, and at the risk of and at the threat of blowing her brains out, demanded money. She complied. Understandably, though, she was traumatized. Two days later, she had a miscarriage. And after months of therapy, she was still unable to return to work. Or take the police officer who responded to a robbery of a drugstore and was killed by the robbery robber as he attempted to escape. The officer, a four-year veteran of the police force, left behind a three-year-old daughter, and a wife eight months pregnant with their second child. And I haven't even touched on the greatest scourge of our society, that's the drug dealer. We now have 70,000 Americans dying every year from drug overdoses, the majority of which are caused by opioids, heroin, fentanyl, and the like. 
Imagine with me the, a second, the just a second what that impact is. That's like having a 737 MAX 8 crash every day of the year. It's a devastating impact on our community. Most of us have been touched by the drug epidemic. I have. Not long ago, I stood beside a casket of a 19-year-old boy while his mother cried uncontrollably. She couldn't understand why we couldn't stop these drug dealers, people who put their greed ahead of the lives of others, dealers who use the death of their victims as a marketing tool to demonstrate the strength of their wares. And sadly, those 70,000 deaths are only a tip of a very large iceberg. Families are ripped apart every day. Families, parents are financially ruined, trying to help their sons and daughters break free of the horrible addiction gripping them. Our health care system and emergency service providers are overrun by calls for service by the illicit drugs, and the impact goes on and on. So let me just conclude, if I may, with a couple of thoughts. First, to reiterate, our criminal justice system is designed to serve the public, not to serve criminals. It's designed to operate efficiently, effectively, and safely. I'm sorry, and to create a safe society. The system we have isn't perfect. The harsh reality is the mistakes are going to be made. But it's irresponsible to say things, as you saw in the video, like, the last place you should seek justice is in the halls of justice, or to suggest that prosecutors will willy-nilly set aside their solemn oath and obligation to seek justice by cheating just to put a notch in their belt. One final thought. I've spent my entire career on the inside of the criminal justice system, seven years as a police officer, two years as a law clerk to a Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals judge, and over 30 years as a federal prosecutor. I don't see criminals as victims, and I don't see a system full of police and prosecutors who are cheats and liars. To the contrary, what I see is, is police officers, in police officers, as men and women who have dedicated themselves to serving and protecting our community. And when I walk the halls of justice, I see prosecutors often who often at very uh, great financial sacrifice are in fact inspired to do the right thing, to follow the rules, to follow the guiding principle that we're there to seek justice. And make no mistake about it, there are bad apples. But I would submit to you that the system has many checks and balances, and it's great at ferreting out in dealing with them appropriately. In case it hasn't come across yet, I'm proud of the system of justice we have. It's a system enshrined in our Constitution, a system that for over 200 years has been honed by some of the finest legal minds in the world, and it's a system that serves the public well. Thanks, Paul. <clears throat> Thank you, Thank Steve. You. Mark? I'm not proud of it. I want to be. And it makes me angry that I can't be. And I'm going to explain why. Uh, first, I want to underscore a point that Sean made by going out on a limb and taking a risk of committing a federal crime in the presence of a federal prosecutor. Um, Sean, can you hold up the drawing in front of you? Wait a second. Before we do this, you realize I have prior convictions. and you We're going to represent each other. Don't worry. <laughs> Everybody recognize that guy? Who is that? Sean, I like that drawing. I'd like to give you $5 for it. Did we just commit a federal crime? Anybody? Shannon? Yeah. Please exercise discretion. Um, 
You could count on it. I appreciate it. Um, and uh, I don't know if anybody's in the mixed nut business, but just be sure that if you're selling mixed nuts, uh, you have at least four varieties in the can because if it's fewer than four, it's a crime. Um, unless it's a clear container, two ounces or less, then you're fine. Uh, but, you, I mean, you know that. I don't mean to be elementary here. Um, and that's the problem, of course. Uh, you can't really say what's a crime and what's not a crime anymore. And I'm not saying there's anybody wasting away in federal prison for selling three uh, mixed nuts with only three varieties. What I'm saying is if somebody decides to come after you and they start looking hard enough, you can't really be confident what they're going to find. That's a problem. Um, let's get something clear. I, I'm not trying to be ad hominem. I want to make a point about cheating prosecutors. It happens, and we know it happens. And if you want to get a, a really lurid description of it happening, go and read the Shulky Report that was commissioned by Judge Emmett Sullivan here in the District Court for the District of Columbia in the aftermath of the Senator Stevens prosecution, the Polar Pen case. Um, that was blown open by a whistleblowing FBI agent who, after the jury had returned a verdict of guilty for corruption, uh, uh, called up and said, look, we've withheld a ton of evidence. Um, I'm very concerned uh, that there have been ethical uh, violations uh, there's an investigation, 500-page report. There were absolutely ethical violations. They weren't inadvertent. They weren't negligent. They were deliberate, and they were willful. Go read the report. Um, probably the greatest ethical scandal in the history of the DOJ, and if not all of its history, then at least its modern history. Uh, the report, written by a very, very well-respected Washington, D.C. lawyer, came within a whisker of recommending that two of the prosecutors themselves be prosecuted for their willful misconduct. And the only reason he didn't recommend that is that they were basically short by one uh, element of the crime. Does anybody know what was the worst punishment that was received by any of these cheating prosecutors? And I use that word advisedly because they deserve it. How many were disbarred? None. That's not a punishment, sir. None. How many were fired? None. A single trans uh, prosecutor was transferred to another office. That's unacceptable. That is unacceptable. And if you go and look, for example, there have been studies that have been done. What happens when prosecutors are called out by name in a judicial opinion for committing deliberate misconduct, sometimes misconduct that has caused a mistrial or an exoneration? We were told that prosecutors can be uh, reported to the state bar and disbarred. They are hardly ever reported to the bar. There's a California study that showed out of 300 or so prosecutors who are listed by name as having committed willful misconduct in the course of a criminal prosecution – I believe two of them had even been referred to the state bar. It simply doesn't happen. Um, we've been told that the Office of Professional Responsibility provides oversight. Uh, I suppose it depends how you define oversight. Uh, there was um, a major scandal in the Clive and Bundy prosecution in Nevada where the prosecutor was determined to have engaged in willful misconduct, uh, so egregious that the district court judge dismissed the case with prejudice. Um, and that was a slam dunk, by the way, if you know who, what Clive, who, who Clive and Bundy is and what he did. But that case was dismissed. It's up on appeal now. Um, we will never find out, almost certainly, we will never find out whether the lead prosecutor in that case is disciplined. Do you know why? Because alone among federal agencies, alone among federal agencies, allegations of professional misconduct by agency lawyers at DOJ are not handled by the inspector general. They're handled by an in-house uh, agency called the Office of Professional Responsibility. And among the many failings of the Office of Professional Responsibility is its avowed policy. When I say avowed, I mean public and uh, uh, committed to, that they do not reveal the identity 
of prosecutors who OPR itself has determined to have engaged in willful misconduct. So even if they do an in-house investigation, they determine that this prosecutor in Nevada has engaged in willful misconduct. We'll never know about it. Why? Because DOJ doesn't tell us the names of prosecutors against whom it's made these findings. I find that outrageous. Um, I'm holding in my hand here a report from the Office of Inspector General that came out uh, last year that announces the retirement of a senior Department of Justice official who was determined by the Office of Inspector General to have committed persistent and widespread sexual harassment of his employees. Um, one incident, uh, the Inspector General concluded, actually ex uh, exceeded sexual assault, uh, sexual harassment and was actually a sexual assault. Uh, OIG concluded that DOJ officials' actions were in violation of law um, and that during the investigation, this official, this senior DOJ official, lacked candor in his statements to the OIG. I don't think I have to translate that for you. Uh, this matter was referred to the prosecu for prosecutors in the Department of Justice. They declined to prosecute. Does anybody know why I have to keep referring to this person as a senior DOJ official? His name was not disclosed. He was allowed to retire in anonymity, notwithstanding these findings. This is not accountability. This is not the accountability that we were promised, and it's not the accountability uh, that we as American citizens deserve. So that's my first point. There is a problem with accountability. We have what we're told to believe, and then we have the reality that I've just described to you. I want to uh, take just one moment, uh, and we'll get into this during the Q&A, to impress one more thing upon you. Throughout the history of this world, there have been regimes that excel in the extraction of confessions from their own citizens. That is not a club that you should want to be in, and we are in that club. We are very much in that club. And people do not suddenly confess because they say, oh, you know what, you got me. What's the point of going to trial? People confess because they are induced to do so. I don't think that every single plea bargain and every single plea negotiation is unconstitutional. But I do believe that it is unconstitutional if it's coercive. It's a very difficult term to define, but let me give you an example. A young man named Aaron Schwartz was prosecuted for computer crimes that he certainly committed in Boston. He broke into a computer closet at MIT, hooked up a program to download all the contents of a private academic database, JSTOR. By the time the federal government, Department of Justice, got finished charging him, he was looking at a 13-count federal felony indictment exposing him to 35 years in prison and a $1 million fine. During plea and we never know what the end of that story is going to be because during plea negotiations, he hung himself. And the U.S. Attorney's Office's response in that case was, well, you know, we offered him six months, so it wasn't really coercive. It wasn't really our fault that he killed himself. What on earth are you doing threatening a young man with 35 years in prison if you think he only deserves six months? We should all think about that because it happens every day. Not, that exact, not, not those exact numbers. And, of course, we have no idea what the exact numbers are. Why? Because all of this takes place behind closed doors. And there's absolutely no way anybody in this room could possibly estimate, with the exception maybe of one person, could possibly estimate whether what happened to Aaron Schwartz is routine, exceptional, or somewhere in between, because we lack that information, and we shouldn't. Clark, thank you very much. Uh, Steve, let me give you the chance, first of all, to respond uh, to what Clark said, and then I'll give Sean an opportunity to respond to uh, what you and Clark said. The majority of the examples that he gave you are cases that are, are incidents that occurred in a, in a courtroom, a courtroom that was over over uh, was supervised by a federal judge, a federal judge who has adopted every federal judge in the country has adopted as part of their local rules the federal the the, the local bar rules, and so every one of those judges could have personally, uh, had they thought it was appropriate, could have personally uh, imposed sanctions. Secondly. 
every one of those judges and the defense attorney in there, where's the criticism of the defense bar? They can make referrals. Not only can they make referrals, they are professionally obligated to make referrals if they think it's appropriate, if they think the conduct by the prosecutor was inappropriate. Where's, where's the criticism of the defense bar? I didn't hear it. And then we hear about all these inappropriate, insufficient sanctions that have been imposed, uh, yet there are all these checks and balances. And I want to give you just a brief idea of the checks and balances in the federal system. As a federal prosecutor, before I can bring a charge, I have to present it to my – first of all, an agent has to present it to me. Then I have to present it to my immediate supervisor. And in most offices, it then gets a second level of review by a criminal chief. That's before I can initiate charges. Next – after, in, 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 in the step in the system to bring those charges, I have to go to the grand jury. The grand jury has to, uh, has to oversee it. Now, my, my colleague here is going to say, oh, you can indict a ham, ham sandwich in the grand jury. And I'm offended by that. I am. And I'm offended by it because I have for 30 years appeared before grand jurors. Those people are conscientious members of our community who are there to do their, their constitutionally imposed obligation and, and it's offensive to me to have somebody criticize them that, that probably has never appeared before them. So, so let me go on. Next, after I brought those charges, a defense attorney is going to sift through every piece of, of, of discovery I have and is going to decide whether they think we have sufficient proof to prove that the person's guilty. Then it's got to go to a federal judge. If we're going to take a guilty plea, that federal judge has to, as you heard Professor Belitho say in the tape, that, that federal judge then has to review the evidence that we've presented to say or in the colloquy to, to say that we have presented sufficient evidence to prove that the, that the defendant's uh, guilty. And going back to this, this example of the 30 individual facing 35 years, those are statutory uh, maximums that are set not by us but by Congress. We bring the charges and in this case offered six months. That was our evaluation. Apparently, I don't know the case, but apparently, our evaluation of the uh, of the facts. And so, whatever happens is not uh, is not not attributable to uh, uh, to to the to the prosecutors in that case. Well, I, I, Sean, I, I, no, Clark, let, let Sean go. Okay. Well, I guess I would say I don't see those checks there. One, I don't see them because when Congress passes criminal laws for the last 30 years, DOJ has lobbied for write the broadest law possible to give us discretion and give us the harshest punishments possible so that we can get guilty pleas from people and not have to go to trial. And that has been the mantra of DOJ for the last 20, 30 years. And so the check on Congress... Congress listens to DOJ. They've done that. That's why we have 5,000 criminal laws, a lot of them with mandatory minimums. DOJ lobbied. It's not like they were just enforcing the law. They were trying to get the law changed to make their jobs easier. A grand jury and federal judges have no discretion to tell prosecutors, hey, you've overcharged this case. The only way that happens is if someone rolls the dice, takes the chances of giving sometimes what is life imprisonment if they go to trial versus a, a guilty plea and hope that a jury will acquit them on the overcharges. And so I don't see many checks in the system for prosecutors on charging decisions. They have ultimate discretion, and their discretion is so vast when they've convinced a Congress to criminalize everything 
and then let them decide how to exercise that discretion. Um, on the other point, I, I agree with Steve on one thing about victims as have not been adequately represented in this discussion. I care a great deal about crime victims. Um, I do criminal justice reform not because I just want to see better rules for criminal defendants and us using less incarceration as a punishment, although I hope for those things too. But I think after having talked with a lot of crime victims that they're not always adequately fulfilled by a long prison term. Uh, and sometimes what they want is a restorative justice model where the defendant stands before them and apologizes and tries to rectify the harm that they caused to that person. And that is not just fixed by a long prison sentence. And I'll give you just one example because it's personal to me. When I got out of federal prison, one of the first things I wanted to do was have a group mediation with everyone that was in the bank and give them closure. But my defense attorney didn't have the records of who were in the banks and who weren't. So I asked the assistant U.S. attorney, and I said, just send out a voluntary voluntary request that if they want to come to this group mediation, they can, and I will sit there and we will go through the hard discussions. And the assistant U.S. attorney said, the punishment was your prison. I want nothing to do with this. I then happened to meet two of the women that were in the bank last fall at an event I was doing to raise money for a criminal justice reform organization at a church, met the two women, and having, have, having had a discussion with them, they both came away and told me, I wish we could have done this 20 years ago when you committed the crime. So I don't think it's right that prosecutors are solely upholding the rights of victims, many of whom don't want the long punishments and don't view that as a solution. Let me uh, let me say I we've we've heard a, a fair amount about individual cases, and there's no doubt that for people involved, people are going to make mistakes, and some are going to go a lot worse than make mistakes. But let me ask an institutional question. Uh, in the movie, the video, Mark Garagos said that going to the Justice Department was the worst place to try to get justice, or something close to that. Um, I think he's wrong. I think Lenny Bruce was a little closer. Lenny once said, in the halls of justice, the only justice is in the halls. He was talking about plea bargaining. To what extent is the institution of plea bargaining the problem here? Or if, if not the not the problem, but a problem here, and how should it be remedied? Let me, now, Clark, let me let you go first, and then Sean, and then Steve. Steve, I, I, I hope that you'll notice something about my presentation. It really matters a lot to me that, that you do notice. Um, I haven't named the name of a single prosecutor, and I know them all, because that's not my agenda. I, I'm not trying to trash people's reputations. I'm not trying to be ad hominem. I really am talking about what I see as institutional shortcomings. Uh, and it is the case that no, no, none of the Stevens prosecutors were disciplined. They should have been. It is the case that OPR doesn't disclose the names of prosecutors that it itself has determined have engaged in willful misconduct. That is not uh, appropriate. We've been told now twice that defense counsel has an opportunity to comb through the prosecutor's evidence um, and see how strong their case is um, uh, during plea negotiations. 
But that's not, or it may happen sometimes, but it's not a requirement. In fact, DOJ has been in a dispute with the Tennessee State Bar because the Tennessee State Bar requires pretrial disclosure of materially favorable evidence, but DOJ policy does not. And DOJ has been taking the position that our prosecutors shouldn't have to be subject to the standards of the Tennessee Bar when it comes to the timing of the disclosure of materially favorable Brady evidence. Um, and there's just a case uh, from the en banc Fifth Circuit uh, where it was held that uh, as a matter of due process, prosecutors do not have a constitutional obligation to disclose even exculpatory material in their possession um, at the same time that they're trying to negotiate a guilty plea from a defendant. Now, individual office policies may differ, but there's a reason why that case had to go all the way up to the Fifth Circuit. I'm talking about systemic institutional issues and concerns. So let's talk about plea bargaining with a party that may be in possession of materially favorable or even exculpatory evidence and has no constitutional obligation to disclose it unless that case goes to trial. That is a terrible environment. That's, that, that is an environment in which the deck is very much stacked against the defendant, and we should be concerned that plea negotiations take place in that environment. The levers available to prosecutors are extraordinary. Pretrial detention is one such lever. It's very difficult to um, participate in your defense when you're uh, in jail, very difficult to find witnesses and documents and phone numbers and so forth. Also, jail's a really unpleasant place to be, even if you're not in the hellscape uh, of Rikers Island. Uh, charge stacking very uh, is, is, is another way of exerting leverage. Sometimes the DOJ uh, will go after people's assets. They did that in a health fraud, a healthcare fraud prosecution that went to the Supreme Court. Um, they reindicted the defendant so that they could uh, um, bring a, a civil forfeiture action uh, and tie up that person's uh, assets so that she could no longer retain defend, uh, counsel of her choice. Um, so. Uh, is uh, can plea bargaining become coercive? It absolutely can. Uh, and has the judiciary made any effort to police that line to ensure that uh, uh, pleas uh, that people enter into have been truly voluntary? No, it has not. And we've got to address that issue. A system in which almost nobody chooses to exercise their hallowed right to a jury trial is a broken system. John? Yeah, I mean, one thing I will agree with Steve on, and one thing as someone who litigates federal criminal cases and who served 11 years in federal prison, I didn't see a lot of people who were wrongly convicted of crimes. Didn't see a great deal of that. So DOJ is really good on that point. I think they are outside of the Stevens case and a handful. But what I saw across the board was punishments that just were well beyond what was needed, well beyond what would satisfy for deterrence and incapacitation. You know, in my case, if I hadn't pled guilty and I had gone to trial instead of 12 years, three months, 92 years and three months, and all of you would be paying to keep me in prison for the rest of my life, and this whole nice little neat story about the guy that went to prison and became a law professor would not exist. Um, you know, so I, I across the board saw that happen in all sorts of cases where the punishments were just so severe. And I'll tell you, the one area where the biggest sentencing disparities are, you know what's the what causes the biggest sentencing disparity? Whether someone's charged in state court or federal court. If they're charged federally, they're almost guaranteed to end up serving a lot longer time in, in prison. And so I don't think we need those sorts of punishments. I do think they are coercive. I think that people that have tribal cases or that are innocent, why would you ever roll the dice if you're Aaron Schwartz with a six-month deal knowing if you lose you could face up to 35 years? It's not that it's always forcing innocent people to plead guilty. Uh, it's that 
it takes away the choice entirely, and the prosecutor gets to decide everything, not the judge, especially if it's mandatory minimums. And prosecutors are making that decision in real time with limited amount of information. Judges, on the other hand, have probation offices that prepare pre-sentence investigation report. They have a lot more information on what the punishments should be. But if DOJ pleads the case in a certain way, they don't even have the discretion to be able to pick and choose a sentence. So what I saw a lot in federal prison were people that were, had received really long sentences that weren't based on culpability, that were oftentimes based on whether or not they cooperated with the Department of Justice. And I do not think that should be what mitigates or aggravates punishment. Oh, what a great segue for me. Um, so here's how the mandatory minimums work. Congress looks at an offense, a crime, and, and I'm going to use drug trafficking because it's the most common example there is. And they set a penalty, and they set a minimum when they say, and minimum mandatory penalties, by the way, have been used since the beginning of our criminal justice system, started back in, in the beginning with mandatory death penalties. But, but now we have mandatory penalties dealing with drug trafficking. And, for example, if you deal with five kilos, five kilograms, it's a huge quantity of cocaine, you face a mandatory minimum of 10 years to life. That's a minimum. You ought to really get a lot more than that given the destruction that's going to happen with that or a kilogram of heroin. So you've got a mandatory minimum. That person comes into the federal system facing probably greater than that because the judge ought to give them more than that. But Congress has said you ought to get at least that. So as a federal prosecutor, that's a critical tool in my toolbox to, to do this. If I have a drug trafficking organization, I'm going to go to that drug dealer and I'm going to say, you, have, you are facing a 10-year mandatory minimum, but there, you do have an opportunity to mitigate that, and it's two things I want you to do. One is accept responsibility for what you did because that's the first step toward rehabilitation. The second thing I want you to do is to sever your ties with this drug trafficking organization by cooperating with the investigators who are trying to ferret out this organization that's destroying our community. And when we do that, I then go to the federal judge and I tell the judge what that person has done. Does that sound like an unjust system? Does that sound like unfair leverage? That's how we infiltrate. That's how we dismantle. That's how we, we uh, get, uh, as I said, infiltrate drug trafficking organizations to destroy them. Without those tools, we can't do that. Anyway, I could go on and on. So Let me uh, give you a chance. If you have a question, please raise your hand. Let me give you the ground rules. Identify yourself by name and organization. Ask a question. And as a definitional matter, giving a speech and then saying, do you agree or disagree with me is not a question. Okay? So does anyone have a question? Uh, woman over there. Yes, you. Oh, well, hold on. We'll give you a mic. So Teresa Manning with Scalia Law School. Um, I did like the film. It was balanced, but it did omit certain things, wrongful conviction being one of them. I'm not so sure that that doesn't happen with increased incidents. The financial disparity, the disparity in resources between anybody going up against the government, I don't know that that was mentioned. And the conviction rate when a criminal case goes to trial, isn't it something like over 95%? That's the end of the preface. The question is um, for Mr. Cook, do you think that prosecutors should jo enjoy immunity for deliberate, that is intentional, wrongdoing? So when you, you're, 
When you say intentional wrongdoing, I assume you're talking about intentional violation of somebody's civil rights. Yeah, no, no, that, yeah, take it that way. Okay. And, and if that's the example, of course, they face prosecution by in federal court. No, it, it, no, 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 no criminal immunity. Civil immunity is necessary. And let me describe uh, something that's not in the material, but, but as I thought through this, I thought about one of the things Clark is worried about is creating a system where the prosecutor is incentivized to not act honorably. You, you, if you put in the backside of the system a, a system of civil liability for that prosecutor, you're going to incentivize that prosecutor for financial reasons not to do the honorable thing. I'd like to think that they'd look past that. You're also going to take them, tell them not to take the harder case. But I'm going to tell you, having been in the federal system for 30 years, uh, uh, criminal, federal criminal defendants are incredibly litigious. We used to spend half of our time responding to post-conviction pleadings created by jailhouse lawyers, some very competent. <laughs> <laughs> But it would it consume. It would consume. I'll, sec- I'll second that. It would consume our, our offices. It's just not a practical way to go about it. Next question. Right there in the front. Cully Stimson. Uh, I work with Paul in the legal center here. Um, but for the last twenty-five years, I've spent most of my career in courtrooms. Um, I've defended rapists and child abusers and drug traffickers. Um, And my question uh, is, as a former prosecutor at the state level uh, and at the federal level for five years as an AUSA here in town uh, and a judge for five years, I've been on all sides of the courtroom except where Sean's been, and I hope not to be there. Um, (laughs) But uh, (laughs) um, what's the alternative? Uh, So I take it from Clark, who I consider a colleague and a friend, that you have an idea in your mind uh, that prosecutors hide evidence, they don't turn over Brady, Jenks, and Giglio material, they should, they should be subject to, the immunity law should go away, uh, this discretion thing bothers you tremendously, there's too much leverage, plea bargains apparently don't work in your utopian world, uh, where I suspect you believe that there should be prosecutors, I hope, Oh yeah. Uh, and I know, I know Cato takes a different position than we do about drug legalization, but setting that aside, um, what's that world look like? I mean, because from my perspective as a defense attorney and a prosecutor, the system is not perfect, but it's about as good as you can get, understanding that these types of dialogues and others try to work to make the system as best as it can be. Clark, you get the answer, and it'll be the last one if you could make it brief and to the point. It was a fascinating account of the first attempted guilty plea in the, on American soil. Um, a guy came into court, got him from the judge and said, and this is like in the 1830s, I think he said, I, you know, I did it. There's no point in having a trial. And the judge says, you can't come into court and confess to a crime. You go home and think about it. I'm not taking your plea. Guy goes home, comes back. I'm not making this up. Sounds like a joke. Comes back the next day. He says, no, really, I, I, I did it, you know. So that's the mindset of the of the founding era judiciary was, no, we have a particular way of adjudicating criminal charges in this country, and it's forcing the government to put all of its evidence out there in public to make sure 
Um, you know, maybe there's something we don't know. Maybe somebody's pressuring this guy behind the scenes. Who knows why he came into court and wanted to plead guilty? That judge wouldn't have anything to do with it. Said, nope, the government's going to come in and lay out its case and show everybody that, that, that this person's really guilty. That's the system we should have. Um, we shouldn't have plea bargain, maybe just a little bit. Uh, in, in England, they have a, a maximum discount on the plea. It can't be any more than 30%. We should have that, except it should be 10% at most. Um, and why should we do that? For transparency, for accountability, for legitimacy, and one more reason. It turns out that serving on a jury is one of the most civic reinforcing uh, things that you can do. People who have had jury service routinely come back and say, I believe in America again. This is one of the best things that I've ever done, and I'm, I'm so committed to this country again. And almost nobody in our system gets to have that experience anymore. If there were no other reason, and believe me, there's dozens, but if there were no other reason to bring back the criminal jury trial in this country, it's for that reason, to recommit people to their role in the administration of justice in this country. With that, let me bring this to a close. I hope you will join with me in thanking our panelists. I hope you will appreciate the time they spent preparing, as well as today, as well as the wisdom that they all had. Thank you very much. You can stay for the Good. That's where we're going to go. I was counting on